Welcome to Tackless Talks and the first ever Poland-inspired Tackless Talk. Apology, first of all, it's been about a month without a standard partial-related Tackless Talk. Thankfully, a lot of travel, all Simcha-related good things that had me out of Cincinnati just about every week for the past month, with the exception of the week of Purim, but that week had Purim. Hopefully after Pesach, we'll be back in the flow with a weekly episode. But this episode, which I actually started recording in Poland, but just discovered there was simply too much background noise and, um, and therefore restarting and hopefully sharing a powerful story, a story that I had known significant elements of the story, but only until it ended in the late 1700s. And it ended as a very dark, tragic outcome. But from darkness, there is often some light. And even though we often grapple with the difficult questions of why do bad things happen and tragedy and things of that nature, and certainly those of you listening who were with me together in Poland just a few days ago, we saw, experienced, touched a lot of tragedy. But this story, an added perspective, which even those who shared the voyage with me to Poland, I don't think this aspect came to light or was addressed so much, um, will hopefully recognize that from the despair, there sometimes are rays of light, but it can take a long time until they are perceived. The story dates back to the 1700s and has us in Poland in the, um, in the palace of the Potoski family. In Landstedt, Poland, yeah, the Potoski family were a family of great nobility. And the part of the story that I knew prior to last week had young Valentin Potoski, the son of Count Graf Potoski, enamored with Judaism. And I knew from about the stage of his maybe late teen years or his 20s, how he'd gone off to Paris to study under the church, yet found ways to touch base with a rabbinic scholar and started learning Torah and rejected the Christianity, which his father was hoping to um, you know, d- develop and further enhance and shifted to further and further love and appreciation of Torah and Judaism and eventually converted to Judaism. And now no longer known as Valentin Potaski, he described himself as Avraham and Avraham. The uh, converts often are referred to as the children of Abraham or women the, the children of Sarah, but Abraham and Sarah are founding fathers who themselves chose to create that bond with God of monotheism. And this Valentin Potaski took the name Avraham himself, who's so Avraham ben Avraham, Abraham, son of Abraham. Problem, conversion to Judaism in Catholic Europe at the time was a capital offense. And now there was a death sentence against him. He had to go into hiding. Eventually ends up in Vilnius, Lithuania. And although for a period of time, he's immersed in Torah study and just growing in his very, very deep and profound mastery of Torah, he's eventually discovered. And there is a sentence against him. He is to be executed unless he abandons his Judaism and reestablishes his ties with Christianity. There is a tradition that his family begged him to do so. Just make that statement that you are giving up the Judaism and we'll let you live privately as a Jew. Nobody has to know. But externally, let it be seen that you have abandoned 
Judaism and you are reattaching yourself to Christianity, but he would have nothing to do with that, was not interested. There's a tradition that the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna, the greatest sage, uh, actually one of the greatest sages and scholars and white uh, saintly individuals of the past thousand years, Rabbi Elijah of Vilnas offered him to do some type of a Kabbalistic salvation that would somehow protect him, yet he refused that as well, and he was ready to be martyred al-Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, which actually happened. Avram and Abraham, known as the Ger Tzedek, the righteous convert to Judaism, died, was murdered on Shavuos of, I believe it was 1794, somewhere in that vicinity in the late 1700s. Burned at the stake, his ashes were retrieved, the whole story in itself, how they were retrieved, and they were buried. And eventually, he and the Vilna Gaon, or Elijah Vilna, ended up neighbors in the cemetery of Lithuania. If you go to Lithuania today, you can see there is a burial site of the Vilna Gaon, and adjacent to his burial site, that of Avram ben Avram. Those are actually not where they were buried initially. Their bodies, well, the Vilna Gaon's body and the ashes of Avram ben Avram had to be relocated when the cemetery was being destroyed, but they remain as neighbors, and there is much discussion about the perception that Vilna Gaon had that with the death of this righteous individual, this very dark, dark moment, it triggered some type of a heavenly reaction that eliminated certain aspects of impurity from the world, elements that are beyond my understanding capacity to grasp and the mystical realm. But I want to talk today about how this story triggered another ray of light on a more quote-unquote, practical realm. So again, for those listening who were together with me in that amazing journey a week ago, our phenomenal guide, uh, Tzvi Serber, who's far more than a guide, I'd say much more of a rabbinic personality, uh, a balmuser, somebody who's constantly finding the personal takeaway message, somewhat of a uh, closet Hasidic Rebbe in terms of his an engagement with music and emotion and trying to uh, reconnect Jews and uh, further their attachment to God. But Svi Serber shared part of the story that I did not know, the story beyond 1794. And that related to part of the story that preceded this as well. For apparently, part of what had inspired young Valentine to investigate Judaism related to a very unfortunate behavior on the part of his father, Count Graf Potosky. The Count, very wealthy Count, which by the way, the, the legend has it that Count Graf Potosky owned 999 properties in that region of Poland. And he had the opportunity to buy one more and move it up to the thousand. But he liked hearing 999. When people would comment about his assets and his wealth as 999, that's more dramatic than saying he owns a thousand properties. A thousand, it's one word, it takes a second. 999, a lot of syllables over there. And he, he, he was so kind of caught up with this sense of the um, significance of his wealth, his physical wealth. He liked hearing about that. Well, there's another thing that he owned, so to speak, aside from his property, as was common to Polish nobility, Typically, the wealthy Polish nobleman 
owned or at least controlled a Jew. They had a Jew who worked for them. Remember, working for them meant, yeah, you actually can own, have your home on my property, but it's my property, and I am the source of your your salary, your sustenance. But you work for me, and life will be okay for you. The Polish nobility took advantage of the fact that the business acumen, the business ethic, and very significantly, the networking capacity that Jews had, because Jews knew Jews elsewhere, and they would trust each other and do deals with each other. And yes, you know, my brother-in-law's cousin lives in that town, and he needs to move some barley out from his property and to find a place to market it. And I have, in this case, Potoski, who are famous for their vodka. I can move his vodka to that territory. The capacity to move money and to move goods, Jews were a very uh, significant piece in the success of the economy of the Middle Ages and beyond, actually, and before. In this case, actually, in the, uh, the 18th century, Count Graf Potoski had his Jew. Often they would refer to them as their Moshe. And as the story is told, and sorry again for those who just heard the story with me last week, this piece may sound a little redundant, but hopefully some insights that we can move that will be somewhat novel. But what our guide shared with me, that the, the father, Graf Potoski, had at some point, as was common, gotten himself drunk and was demanding of his Jew some rather demeaning behavior. The Jew would be his source of entertainment. So the no Polish noblemen, when they got drunk, would demand of their Jews, hey, hey, start barking like a dog, roll on the ground like a pig. And again, exercising their authority and their ultimate ownership, in a sense, of the Jew and his property, demanded this and it wasn't worth putting up a fuss. Well, once time that this was happening, Young Valentin was witness to his father's cruel control over this Jew. And he decided that he wanted to walk over to the Jew's house and apologize, comment about how, how disturbed he had been to see this scene. Well, he gets there, and now it's Friday night. And as he looks in the window, young Valentin Potoski sees something that catches his eye and his heart and his mind. For although the Jews' home would have been quite petty in comparison with the massive palace of the Potoski, still standing there in Lancet, Poland, and the furnishings would not have compared at all to the lavish furnishings of the Count and his family, and the food probably could not compare to the food provided by the chefs of the kitchen crew of the Count, but Young Valentin Potoski, looking through that window and seeing the Shabbat table, saw nobility. He saw a nobility far more grand than the nobility of his own noble upbringing and palace. And young Valentin Potoski connected with that Shabbat scene and said, I want to know what that is. I want to know what that's all about. And that was one of the pieces, probably the first piece, that triggered his interest in Judaism. That later on when he was in Paris and he attached himself to a Jewish sage and scholar and started learning, the initial opening happened with that glimpse into the Shabbos table. Now, after the death 
of Avraham and Avraham, the original Valentin Potaski, his father regretted how he had abused his Jew. And, fascinatingly, began to support the Jewish community of Lancet. And here, this very dark, tragic moment of the death of this righteous individual, a ray of light came out of here in the fact that for many, many, many years, the Jews of Lancet had a boost to their living, their capacity to feed their children, their capacity to marry off their children, their capacity to educate their children. A, a light that radiated out of the darkness of the death of Abraham and Abraham. But it didn't stop there. Fast forward into the middle of the last century in World War II and the German invasion of Poland. And the German practice, when they came across Jewish communities, we know what happened to the populace of the community, and we know what happened to the shuls. The synagogues, the shuls were generally destroyed, and the synagogue, the great synagogue of Lancet, was about to be no exception to that as the Germans set the shul on fire. But the shul, which is maybe 200 yards from the palace of the Potaski family, those flames caught the attention of the Potaski family who came running with buckets of water and begged the Germans, let us put out the fire with their claim that they were worried about the fires coming back to spread and potentially destroy their palace, destroy the community. Quite likely that they were not really concerned about the destruction of their palace, but they were concerned about the destruction of the synagogue, as for many generations, their family had dedicated themselves to the betterment of the Jewish community. And although they could not spare the Jews of Lancet, the shul was saved. The building stands. And again, another faint light coming out of that darkness, a shul Okay, nobody left to use it, but a shul nonetheless. But the light expanded a little bit following that period of time. We had the pleasure of meeting an individual, a Gentile by the name of Merrick, who has dedicated his life to sing to it that that synagogue is maintained, is preserved, that any tourists that come that want to daven and want to pray in that synagogue maintain the practice that had been done for centuries in that location, that that building remains available and neat and clean for them to do so. And fascinatingly, he taught himself Hebrew. He can communicate. He communicated us in Hebrew and some English. I think actually his Hebrew may have been more smooth than his English, so he can communicate with groups coming from Israel, groups coming from America and England, and connecting with that original language of the Jew as he preserves the memory of the Jews of Lancet. So much so that the Gentiles of Lancet refer to him as the last Jew. The last Jew of Lancet. Not technically Jewish, but preserving the memory, preserving the, the message and the ideals and ideas that they not be lost. Another ray of light emanating from that darkness. And when we see tragedy, we have questions, we're bothered, we're pained, and we don't have answers. And the Talmud tells us that when Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, asked God about Sadiq Varalo, about the trouble coming the way of the righteous, how could there be such pain, 
such hurt, such anguish to the righteous. Again, in that week in Poland and dealing with the Holocaust, we saw, perceived, touched so, 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 so many examples of that darkness, of that tragedy. Moshe himself, when he asks God, is told by God that you can't, in this lifetime, in this current mode, you can't get the full answer to that. The metaphor they are given is God shows him, you can see the back of my face, so to speak, not the front. And I've heard a fascinating way of perceiving an element of this message. That if you take a needle point, the front of the needle point is a beautiful scene. And let's say that's the face of the needle point. Turn it around and you see the back and it's like, what's this mess? What's this doing here? This knot over here, these colors. Again, from the back, you can't appreciate the scene. And even to the degree you get some idea of the scene, there's so much that doesn't fit the scene on the back of that needle point. That's a parallel idea. When you see the back in this lifetime, you don't yet have the perception, the perspective of seeing the front. You don't have the full history in front of you. And to me, this is a striking example. Having, if someone was there, witness to the death of Count Potosky, of the son, Valentin, now Avram and Avram, all they would see is that darkness. And of course, they already see some light in seeing the conviction and the devotion to God, but they see the tragedy and the, the death, and that seems to be simply black. But with a few, with the with um, advantage of being able to look with a few more centuries, we do see quite a few rays of light that emanated from there. Who knows how many Jewish children were actually able to survive and thrive because their families had food for them because of the largesse of the Potaski family trying to seek some level of atonement, so to speak. Who knows how many young couples were able to marry, how many children were able to study Torah, how many of the synagogues were able to preserve having a kosher Torah scroll and having services. We don't know. We know that there were many, many, many such uh, examples. We don't know particulars. We know that if a community is being supported for many generations, you're going to have these type of benefits that were the outcomes of that funding, which was the outcome of the tragedy. And again, the shul being spared, and that a group from Cincinnati, Ohio, and Columbus, and Atlanta, and Pacific, New Jersey, but could stand and be inspired by a Murek. And if a Jew in 2023 can say, hey, I'm going to dedicate a little more time to learning some Hebrew, because if that Murek could do it, why am I not doing that? And if a Jew in the year 2023 can say, how come I'm not trying to attend the synagogue when this family went out of the way to protect the see a synagogue is preserved. And how can I not go to synagogue when I have one accessible to me? And that synagogue mourns the loss of the community surrounding it and remains vacant, except when tour groups come through. If that inspiration can happen today, we can be adding light and furthering the light that comes out of that darkness, of the death of Avram and Avraham, the Geret Sedek, that original Valentin Potaski. If we can do that, if we can today find further inspiration from the story, from the dedication of Avram and Avraham, from the various outcomes that came as a result of his death, and from the fact that each of these times we come across an old shul over there, a vacant shul, it gives us that sense of 
I've got to do something to see to it that our synagogues are actually attended and I'm praying. And when we think about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayers that took place in all these synagogues that are now abandoned, then when I can't get the soul, but can I put in a prayer to God? Can I connect? Find some way to up my game in terms of my connectivity to God, my praying Hebrew, English, with a sitter, today with an app, you can find so many ways to develop our capacity to connect with Hashem, to connect with God. If we can take that inspiration, then we can bring further light out of that darkness, and we can continue to grow to be the type of people who are far more likely to achieve our tackles.